distanced, but you're not alone. These are the COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph, brought to you by the Center for Medical Simulation. From the front lines of healthcare, the home front, and other unique perspectives on learning and connecting in the time of coronavirus. Hi, this is COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph, and I'm here today with Liz Crow, a pediatric social worker in Australia. Liz, I'm delighted to have you with us. Thanks, Jenny. It's a real pleasure for me as well. So usually you're on the other side of this conversation. You've been doing a lot of podcasting with Coda Change, which is literally the Coda to the wonderful, influential conference called SMAC. And you and a number of colleagues, Roger Harris, Ali, Jesse Spur, and others have been moving this forward. And so maybe we'll talk a little bit about that also. But the main focus today, Liz, that I'd like to explore with you is your work as a pediatric social worker, an author of the book, The Little Book of Loss and Grief, You Can Read While You Cry, which I have been a beneficiary of. I think it's a fantastic book, although it's a sad subject. And you have been thinking a lot about and studying grief and loss, peer support, how we can be there for each other. And so it seems to me that you are the perfect person to be talking to at this time when so many people are up against so much in healthcare. I think it's a hugely challenging time. And I, I don't think that there can be enough conversation really for people around how they're meant to manage and negotiate this strange new world. Liz, I've been a real fan of your talks at SMAC with titles such as What's Love Got to Do With It? I think your sometimes irreverent take, helping us kind of swear our way out of trouble, a title of one of your talks, is really important to us right now. I think we can be really, really serious about everything, and I think we should be. But another thing I'd like to explore with you today potentially is a role of humor in getting through all this. So let me just start with what's front of mind for you right now? We're in a unique position in Australia in that the pandemic hasn't really hit. So we're starting to tube our first COVID patients. However, we've been in lockdown for a couple of weeks. And so we're seeing a really steady lead into this. And of course, we don't know the outcome. I guess when I'm talking to my overseas colleagues in the UK and the USA, um, when we've been exposed to what's happened in Italy and China, you know, everyone's kind of wanting to know What does resilience look like in a pandemic? How do we get through it? And I think there's been a real call back to the Maslow hierarchy and needs. I think what people really need are the practicalities. You know, am I going to get infected? Am I then subsequently going to infect my family? Are we going to have enough PPE? You know, where am I going to sleep if I'm worried about contagion? So I think there's been a real practical component about that. And I guess from a psychological component, uh, for me, I think it's really about grit. (laughs) And you talk about humour. I I think people have to find these ways to have these micro breaks, uh, releases, psychological spaces to go to when you're working 16-hour days and it's all hands on deck. We interviewed someone the other day with another podcast series in New York, and he was talking about, you know, intubating a patient every 20 minutes for like a 12-hour shift. That's unprecedented. We, we don't know that sort of thing. So 
what does well-being look like in that context of that? And I think it is about the practicalities, but it is also about mucking in like it's really gritty and having small moments to laugh not because it's funny but just because of the overwhelming wow you know we've never seen this for most of us in our lifetime and hopefully we don't see it again. Maslow's hierarchy of needs starts with basic safety and works up through such things at the very top as self-actualization and part of what you're calling our attention to right now is when you're working a long shift and you might be afraid for your own personal protection and whether you might get infected and you have to do possibly complex procedures in a new way with that personal protective equipment on and it's many hours and it's uncertainty and it's possibly a new space that there's something about stamina and there's something about self-care and there's something about taking care of yourself and taking care of each other. This is potentially a kind of a stretch, but at those times when I've been on really, really long rock climbs or really, really long hikes, and I've gotten sort of out farther than I feel safe, my stress level goes up when I can't control all the factors that I'm used to being able to control. And so I wonder if you could kind of talk with us about that mixture of fear and stamina and you use the word grit What are the resources you think people could be drawing on? What do you yourself draw on? What do you find your colleagues are drawing on? Well, we're we're not in that phase. So I I guess I'm talking kind of academically, but talking to this amazing intensivist from New York um, on Wednesday night, you know, he was saying what was helpful to him was to constantly draw comparisons to people and generations who'd done it tougher than this and lived to tell the tale. And I guess we're talking a little bit about post-traumatic growth in amongst all of that. And Mm. I I think that that's an important thing to think of that, you know, we're all going to be impacted in every way, shape or form. Everybody, I think, is going to be impacted. How do we be impacted in a way that we can acknowledge our grief, acknowledge our stress, but is there the role for growth and how do we tap into that? And I guess he was saying, you know, he kept reminding himself that the people of Syria have been living these horrendous lives for years on end. And they're just someone on the television for most of us. And he was saying, you know, I work 16 hours. I'm separated from my wife and family. I'm worried that I'm going to get sick myself. I'm worried that we're not going to have enough resources. However, when I come home, I have somewhere safe to sleep and I'm warm and I have food and I have people who are checking in and caring about me and I have the resource to keep using my intelligence to strive to learn more about this disease. I know, And I guess, you know, one of the things we've been saying is we know what the enemy is. For the first time, perhaps ever, the whole world is having the same fight. It doesn't matter if your race, your religion, the color of your skin, your BMI, like we are all in this together. And and while I'm, I'm absolutely not minimizing how horrendously fatiguing and the fear of all of this, you know, there is still much of me that believes there's an opportunity here for our world to change. There's an opportunity for us to say we are more the same than we are different. What I admire about our colleagues who 
right in the thick of it. Even, you know, our Chinese colleagues, they were working so hard, but when they came home, they wanted to get the research out. They wanted to tell the rest of the world, you know, proning is the way to go. These patients are different to, to ventilate, you know, the Italians. And that has made a difference when it comes to America, having that knowledge, breaking down those barriers, not waiting for bureaucracy to give the thumbs up, using platforms such as social media to ensure that we can fight this collectively with the best of our knowledge. You know, there's a part of me that is so proud of humanity at the moment. And I think, you know, that that's what we kind of have to tap into. Now, if you're working a 16-hour shift, you may not have time for those existential reflections. But, you know, we are working together and some of those people we know in the intensive care units, they're nurses from outpatients. You know, they worked in critical care 22 years ago, but they have put their lives on the line, not just for their patients, but for their colleagues, for humanity, for their friends that they didn't know that they had in critical care. And I think that's a source of power. That's, that's something for us to, to tap into. Yes, and I think that idea of how we frame this challenge, perceiving our common humanity, perceiving it as an opportunity to be our best, although these kind of sound like platitudes, the people who seem to be doing best around me in the hospitals that I work with here in Boston seem to be framing the challenges in that way. And I'd like to just build on your concept of focusing on our common humanity, although we don't often get to say those words, and dig into a little bit some of the micro aspects of that common humanity right now. So if somebody's an intensivist in New York, they have one kind of very difficult sort of transition from in the room to out of the room, donning and doffing. Do they have time for a break? Those of us who are not in healthcare, we have a lot of other transitions coming from the grocery store to my car to my house. Obviously, I'm lucky to be able to do all those things, but I have to do that quite differently than I did before the COVID crisis. I have to remember to not touch my face. I have to wash my hands, all these different things. As a rock climber, I think a lot about micro transitions and boundaries between things as sources of resilience and sources of great vulnerability. And you mentioned this as an area that's interesting to you right now is these micro transitions and boundaries. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you've been thinking about. That. Well, for me, I guess I got interested in the whole thing about boundaries because even in my role in the pediatric intensive care unit, there's little rituals, I guess, I'm, I'm not even aware of that I, that I have each day in order to psychologically prepare. I see a lot of children die. I have to, I guess, help carry people in the worst moments of their lives. And so how do I transition from my role as a mother or having gone to the gym or whatever into that role as a counsellor for therapeutic intervention, you know, during crisis and bereavement? And for me, actually, the gym is a big part of that. It's almost like physically shaping up to mentally shape up to go into the day. Then at the end of the day, I like to go for a walk, let it go, release, 
you know, I used to do a boxing class on a Monday. It was almost fighting my way into the week. Saturday, do a dance class to let it go. So even though you may not know that you, you make these transitions, it's about protecting your territories, I guess. You know, like I'm not going to bring all of this sadness and work home. I'm a single parent. I have two children. I don't want to expose them to everything that's going on. How, how do we do that? So then I got to thinking, like, how do you possibly do that when you're in the midst of a pandemic? And I think what's very new for the majority of us who've never been in a war-torn zone is that previously we go into the intensive care space or the hospital space. We know our family is safe back home. We're not thinking about our parents who live you know, 200 miles away, what's happening for them, because everything that's important to us now is, is in the hospital. Whereas we've got to hold all these tensions, you know, like when I go to work and I'm trying to think about our responses to the COVID disaster, I'm still worried about my parents in lockdown who are in their 70s. I'm worried about people with disabilities in their home. So there's this great merger. And so I think that you know, in order for healthcare providers to survive this, they've got to have these very fierce boundaries around the little pockets of time that they have off. And I know that what a lot of people are saying is there's just so much COVID noise. You know, like you finally, you doff off, you might have the opportunity to have a shower at work, you may not, you might, you know, have a ritual about decleansing yourself in the hope that you don't bring it into the home. But then people come home and they spend 10 minutes with their family and then they're on their phone like checking twitter checking checking their emails like what's the new latest research where are we supposed to be going so how do we create these transitions where there's some safe boundaries and also how do we switch our brains off so that we're ready for sleep and that we get some real rest and that we stay connected to our families who are really worried about us in a way that's very real and very present and I guess you know again for the first time it's really brought home I think for many of us about what do we prioritize and when? I'm hearing lots of my friends who aren't in health just saying, I forgot how much I like my garden or I forgot how much I like my home. I forgot how much it's fun to play a board game. You know, like we've kind of gotten on this busy, busy, busy and now we have to consciously stop. We're being legally enforced to stop and go into lockdown. And for healthcare professionals, how do we create some boundaries around that where we actually say, We've worked 16 hours. We've done our bit. And even if we're only going to take an hour off before we delve into the literature or we try to think about something new, you know, how to build a ventilator out of nothing or, or whatever, how do we create this pocket of time where our brain just has a little break, where we're present and we're real to our families? What you're talking about is an intensified version, in my view, of the kind of pauses stopping multitasking, mindfulness, being present that many people have been talking about in healthcare over the last 10 years when we talk about resilience, when we talk about trying to reduce burnout, when we talk about clinician wellness. And it's almost like the dial has gotten turned up under COVID on all these things, which is allowing people to experience and highlight the cost of not turning off their phone, the cost of this constant barrage of information, as you're saying. And I know you've spent, you know, more than 15 years thinking about wellness, thinking about resilience, thinking about how do you support your colleagues in the pediatric critical care context to manage these demands, partially by managing boundaries and other things and turning things on and off. But now with the dial turned up more 
on the intensity of the noise around COVID and the other kinds of demands on people. How would you advise us? What are you thinking about in terms of changes in practice? You said this is an opportunity for us, and I agree. The entire human race has to rethink our economy, our practices, everything we do, how we relate to each other. And so in terms of the small world of resilience and wellness for clinicians in healthcare, where's your mind going at this moment in terms of how we should think about that? Well, for me, I, I think it's really important to realize that what resilience looks like during COVID-19 is devastation, fatigue, a questioning of, uh, around what's important, tears, you know, frustration, bewilderment, and still going to work. That's what resilience looks like. So I 100% expect everyone to be impacted in a range of ways. And for some people, they will be impacted in a way that may be profound. And other people, they may be impacted in a way that drives them to work differently or to push them into a research field. No one can say that COVID-19 hasn't impacted them. Even if you're the local butcher, you've been impacted by COVID-19 because your business has changed and the way you go out has changed. So I think we've all been impacted. So for, for me, resilience at this moment is about how do you tap into what's driving you and where the meaning is and how do you keep feeding that small source? And it, at times it might feel quite tiny <laughs> that mm -hmm. you've really got to dig deep. But, you know, someone said to me the other day, you seem to be working like crazy hours and podcasting till late night and researching things. Are you exhausted? And I'm not. I'm energized because there's a calling. And I think that's what we're hearing from these, you know, doctors and nurses and the cleaners. You know, someone from St. Emlyn's was saying, you know, the cleaner feels so committed in their hospital to doing their job to the best of their ability to keep the health professionals safe. And they're, they're deeply aware of their role in this. And that's it. That's tapping in. Like, what is my role? You know, for people who aren't healthcare professionals, your role is to stay at home, not to infect others, to not panic buy so that when healthcare professionals go to the grocery store, there's still food there. Everybody has a role to play in this. And the more we can amplify in our own minds, what's my role and what's my commitment, that's, that's your source of resilience as far as I'm concerned. For me, I'm not sure if pediatrics is going to be impacted. So I've applied for a job at the adult hospital. I want to play my role. I accept that that increases the risk, but it also increases my opportunity to help, to stand alongside my colleagues. And that's not because I'm a saint. I'm, believe you me, I'm far from it. I'm a naughty Australian. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's like this is our whole lives. In some ways, we've been gearing up for this. And it's our call to arms. It's our call to humanity. And we have an opportunity and a responsibility. And that meaning making for me, I think, is very powerful. And what sort of like our source of light to the resilience and our source of light to making meaning and being impacted, but surviving, hopefully physically surviving, but also mentally surviving well. Dialing up the intensity, I think, is helping people you're saying, to tap into their wellsprings of meaning, to find their compass, to find their calling. And a lot of the work that 
You've shared over the years in your public speaking that I've heard, other people's work I've read around resilience and meaning. It often is about finding those key patches of meaning at work. What is it that connects you to why you became a doctor or became a nurse, or in my case, became an organizational behavior scholar? What do I care about? Why do I like to help people connect, which is part of what gives me meaning? And I think this crisis moment, crisis being a combination of opportunity and danger, is heightening our senses, heightening our sense of meaning. And I think what you're offering us here, Liz, is the idea that edginess can actually be a source of resilience because it forces us to tap into why we do what we do, helps us focus our attention in areas that are most meaningful for us, and we're to some degree forced to do so. The other thing I'm interested in is your take on how do we support each other? How do we connect with each other? Uh, You and I have talked quite a bit about briefing and debriefing, and we both think about that a lot. I've been seeing a lot of benefit of people being able to share with each other at the end of a shift, you know, what was scary for them, what was meaningful for them. Stories of, of residents in programs here in the States who are often highly, highly supervised and now feel like they have the scope to actually do what they were trained to do because there are just so much work to do. They they have more uh, ability to practice independently. So this connection with others, I think, is also a huge source of resilience. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you think about either briefing, debriefing, or other sources of connection. So two things come to mind. The first is, is that in my own PhD studies, when I looked at meaning making, it's not just driven by our patients. A lot of what the staff talked about is meaning making as a group, meaning making with my colleagues being able to look around a room and think what we do is quite unique and these people are having a shared experience with me. And I think that we'll see that more and more in COVID-19. And, you know, you see things on social media like our cardiac surgeon has retrained to be an ICU nurse. I mean, every nurse loves that. They they love the opportunity to join with people from different specialties to say, you know, forget about hierarchy in a hospital. It's flattened. We are 100% in this together and I'm, I've got your back and you've got my back. And so I think there's a huge meaning making in that connection and that collective experience. Because if you're working in an intensive care or an emergency department anywhere really in the world at the moment, these people literally are, are helping keeping you alive and helping keeping your families alive and helping keeping your community alive. So that, that's, a, that's a bond that I think that will never be broken. And I hope that we see some of the breakdown of tribes when we all go back to whatever the new normal is after this, that we're not so much fighting with the radiography department or the anesthetic department, because actually we have experienced something so powerful and unique together. It'll be a common thread that'll hold us tight. I guess in terms of the the debriefing stuff, as you know, we've both been been friends of debriefing you in the um, simulation space. And for me, I like to talk about hot debriefing after an event and then for the want of a better word, cold debriefing, you know, seven to 10 days or longer after where there are things that are still bothering us operationally or psychologically about things that it's worth getting together in the team. I think we can't play down the role of leadership in all of this, how important it is before every single shift to look around and say, hey, this is who I am. Who are you? I've not met you before. And before we go in, 
can we take a couple of minutes to talk about donning, doffing, you know, what's safe PPE? What is it that we're resource rich in today? And what is it that we're resource poor? And today we're going to welcome so-and-so from outpatients who hasn't worked in an ICU. Can we please keep an eye to her? And, you know, to actually name what we think is going to happen. So if we're handing over, you know, we've got six patients. We're thinking this patient in this bed and this patient in this bed is at a huge risk of dying. If we have to make a decision today around resources, they probably aren't going to benefit from hemofiltration. So let's go this way. It, it frames everyone up and it, it helps people step into the territory in a really present way. It also helps people to brace, to grit down and think, okay, potentially I might see X amount of people die. That's going to be my experience and I'm, I'm going to step in knowing that that's a possibility. Preparing people before every single shift is so vital because what we're hearing is during the course of the shift, People are making lots of independent decisions and having to function on their own. Also behind the N95 masks, it's very hard to communicate. It's hard to hear. It's quite muffled. Also from an infection control, it can be hard to cross bed spaces. So preparing as a group, finding the solidarity, helping people psychologically know what they're likely to see, experience, what the challenges might be, I think is hugely beneficial. It almost has, a, again, a war zone tone to it. And then equally, being able to do that at the end of the shift, I think, is also vital. I, I would like to think that people are doffing with a ritual of letting go, like decontaminating, hopping back into a space of something else and, and having the opportunity to speak. I mean, normally what would happen is people would then go to the pub or, you know, go for a beer or, or go for a cafe or go for breakfast or something or catch up. And But we, of course, <laughs> have all these restrictions around that. So how do we keep those connections happening but don't lose the power of taking the time, even when we're exhausted, to say, you know, this is what my learning was today or this is what I found really challenging or taking the moment to really weep or cry or mourn as a collective group, even if it's just from fatigue and despair, to say, actually, my vulnerabilities or my exhaustion today is real and it's validated because it's a shared experience. Mm -hmm. Some beautiful things you've said there about the briefing or, or planning together and then also the debriefing. So first with the briefing, uh, I noted that you've linked it with the word leadership. And one of the powerful leadership theories that's always really uh, spoken to me and I think is really helpful is Ron Heifetz's idea of adaptive leadership, which mm -hmm. is leadership where we're naming things that haven't been named before, um, yeah. as opposed to technical leadership, which is also important, which is, you know, we need to uh, do a VFib arrest algorithm. We all know what that is and that needs to be led. That's technical yeah. leadership. What you're talking about here is at the beginning in the briefings, by naming the challenges, by naming the fears, by naming something that may be difficult, this is a person who's been working an outpatient and now they're here, we're normalizing, we may be demystifying, we're providing a map, putting it into language creates almost a net among us of you know, linguistically, we all understand what this is and we all feel connected. And I think that process of naming also reduces anxiety. There's that adage, name it to tame it. People can sort of take a deep breath because things have been acknowledged together. 
I think you're exactly right about saying these, these are our risks today and these are our resources and this is how we're going to accommodate and this is where we might run into trouble. Gets people to thinking, okay, if we get into trouble, we knew this was coming, we knew that this may be hard, we know that difficult decisions may have to be made, but we were prepared for that. Even if it feels wrong and awful at the time, we were prepared. We knew that we knew that was a possibility. And I think the more we name it during this crisis, the more important it is to say, you know, one of our concerns today is that we've got 30 patients who need the hemofiltration. We've only got five people who are going to be able to access it. How are we going to be able to make the decisions around that in a way that is clinical and ethical, knowing that there is no true right way you know it allows everyone to share the collective decision making rather than having it a burden on an individual and it's also about giving people to the idea to bounce ideas off each other in a way that it's still a logical decision rather than a, a panic decision mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. A, something that we're having to decide in the moment and that's giving little bits of control over a a very uncontrollable, crazy, chaotic situation. And that's important. You know, there is, there's no perfect way for this to happen because this is a far from perfect situation. And for the majority of people, again, unless you've worked in a war zone, which the majority of us have not, this is our new norm for the time being. And we have to do things differently and yet stick with what we know is the same. That is beautiful. And then switching back over to talking about the debrief, for example, at the end of the shift and how do we make sense of it and how do we be present with each other as we, as people cry or feel scared or whatever. Part of what I thought was important about your concept there was that it allows people again to circle up and sort of feel connected with each other. So a source of resilience is that it can be processed. And then I loved your analogy to doffed. Can Mm. we set it aside? Can we process it enough to set it aside? And that that goes back to those ceremonies or micro transitions that maybe there's some sort of moment where I've, I've done that, I'm finished with that, and now I'm gonna move on to something else it's different right now. We don't get to put things down in the same way, or I, I'll, I should say my impression is my healthcare colleagues don't get to put things down in the same way that they usually do. Uh, yeah. But could you talk a little bit about your thinking about that sort of analogy to doffing? I think it's like a rite of passage into the next part of your life. And even if it's for a very small time, I, I do stupid things at work all the time to make my colleagues laugh when things are not funny and things are very difficult. So, um, and I'm seeing that on social media where people in between two isolation rooms form a heart in their, you know, full PPE. For me, I always do things like moonwalk, you know, Michael Jackson moonwalk backwards in things just so that someone across the room can see something funny. There's a horrendous photo of me. I really hate rides at theme parks. And seven years ago today, I took my son on a (laughs) ride. And at the moment they took the photo, I have the most horrendous face. And I sent that face (laughs) to a number of people saying, is this what COVID looks like? I'm so ugly in it. And that makes people laugh. You know, I just think we have to find these little opportunities to say, like, I remember who I am. I remember what's important. And I love this team and I'm, 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 I'm in this with these group of individuals. And I think we make these rites of passage, like 
okay, we've only got six hours off. How are we going to have some escapism? And, and for people who feel very committed to using that time to make sure that they're on top of literature and things like that, I appreciate that. But what I'm going to say to you is, is that actually, if you want to be your best self again in six hours time, just give that 45 minutes of reading mm. and then do something else. And for me, you know, again, if I, I've just done a really awful death at work where I feel really sad, I might play Rage Against the Machine, you know, killing in the name, like really loud, just rage in my car and scream and, you know, head bang around and look completely crazy to the car driver next to me. Or maybe I need to let it go and I'll play some classical music just as a way to bring my adrenaline down. So there's lots of little rites of passage that we can take either as a group or as individuals to move us into the next phase so that we can have some real rest knowing that tomorrow looks exactly the same and it's going to be as equally challenging. And that for lots of people, we're going to have to do this for weeks. I, you know, lots of people are saying this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. And so if you sprint too hard early on, first of all, you're going to lower your immune system. You're going to be more susceptible to, to catching the virus yourself. But also you're going to be cognitive overload and you're naturally going to have the potential to become more irritable and not be who you want to be in this moment. So to have, have moments of selfishness, so sit a little longer on the toilet when you finally get to pee um, <laughs> and just take some time is really important because we've got we've to fill our own cup in any way that we can so that if we have to do this for two and a half months, we see it through to the end. Because I think for most healthcare professionals, that is part of that meaning. I want to be at the start of this race and I want to be at the finish of this race. Not for myself, but for our patients and for the team and because of what called me to this profession in the first place. Hmm. So Liz, I'm going to wrap up our conversation uh, with you in the next couple minutes and just turn it to a little bit of a personal note and just say that part of what I think keeps me going in times like this is connecting with marvelous colleagues like you, your work on stage, your podcasting, the conversations that you and I have had over the last year or so are real sources of joy in large part because your irreverence, your unusual way of thinking always just makes me feel more human myself in a good way. And I also just so enjoy the connection with you. Talk to me a little bit about your, you know, what's keeping you going right now outside of healthcare as we think about resilience in a, in a sort of more personal sense. Well, exercising is a really big thing for me. And I'm also a comfort eater. So I will let you know that last night, my partner and I are separated. He's in another state. He's also in health. And so we watched a movie together and I ate lots of dry cereal, about half a kilo, actually, which is like... <laughs> For those of you who don't do metric, that's a lot. It's yeah. too much. I'm a comfort eater. I also have to exercise a lot. And so to lose the gym and things have been huge for me. And one of the nurses has kindly left me some ham weight. So I'm trying to stay in my own routine yeah. of getting up every morning at 10 to 5 and exercising so that I feel physically strong for, so that I'm mentally strong for whatever happens during the day. It's a public holiday here in Australia. Um, we're podcast. I've already yeah. exercised for 
uh, nearly two hours this morning. And then, which really won't make me have a good body for anyone who's out there. <laughs> Let me assure you, I won't be in bikinis anytime soon. It just means that I can keep eating dry cereal. And then we're doing some work in, in preparation for some COVID, talking about difficult conversations for our state. But tomorrow it's my son's 16th birthday. And he can't have any friends over. And so I have said that I will do whatever he wants for the entire day. So we're going to bake a cake and we're going to watch some movies. And I will just do whatever that stinky, smelly, delightful boy wants to do for the day, including potentially have to learn some foul video game and play with him. Um, because, you know, my children are, are really important and they've been fantastic during the last few weeks of me saying, please don't be upstairs. I'm podcasting. Please. Can I have this time? So when I am present with them, I try to be present because whatever our world looks like at the end of this, they're the next generation. And I want them to come through as healthy and connected and resilient as strong as I possibly can. And they're only going to get that if they actually continue to have a mother who is listening to whatever's going on for them. Well, thank you, Liz Crow pediatric social worker and public speaker extraordinaire. It is absolutely a delight to spend some time with you and uh, wish you the best of luck with the really important work you're doing there in uh, Queensland. Thank you very much, Jenny. And it's uh, as equally delightful for me. And please, everyone in America, take care and reach out if you need to. Um, you know, your friends and colleagues in Australia care about you. Thank you for listening, and we hope this was a bit of an oasis in your day. Remember, you're socially distanced, but you're not alone. These are the COVID Chronicles with Jenny Rudolph. Learn more at www.harvardmedsim.org.